Welcome, everybody, to another flashy and flamboyant episode of This Week in Liberpods. I am your host, Nikki P, here again with yet another collection of some of the dankest, the dopest, the most inflammatory and exceptional podcasts out there within the libertarian community. Was that emphatic enough? And awkward pause achieved. I've done all my favorite things in the podcast episode. So today, we are going to start out with... Tasting Anarchy. The greatest, best, and perhaps only libertarian wine podcast? That may sound odd, but I tell you, these guys are quite odd, but also exceptional. In this episode, they're talking about dogs. And everybody loves dogs. That's, uh... The thing other than cats that makes the internet go around, right? And I mean that they're sitting on wheels, running really fast to make it so that the electricity goes through the wires. I may need to cite a source on that. Don't hold me to it. But without further ado, let's uh, get off with our first pod with Tasting Anarchy. And you are not safe to drive. We will not leave you out to dry, though we will be frustrated with you. Yes. Um, but <laughs> in a friendly frustration. Right. All right. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and move on to our article, though. I think that was the yes. bit, that was good. Childerberg plugging. Mm-hmm. Um, so this article, I think, is is near and dear to my heart and to yours as well because we both love dogs. Oh yes. And the title is "In Wine Country, Dogs Are Sniffing Out Treats uh, or Oops. Threats." I'm sorry. Dogs are sniffing oh. out threats to. $325 a bottle Cabernet Sauvignon. It's Holy by boy. it's by Ellen McCoy, and mm. I will go ahead and break down the summary. I thought it was a really cool article, and um, we can Real go quick, ahead. Yeah. What what does it come out of? It com- oh, yeah, uh, like I think it's Bloomberg. No, Bloomberg. It's Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah. Bloomberg, yeah. yeah Bloomberg. I meant to say decanter first. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. It was, it was a, I actually got this from the aggregator on Wine Business News, but mm. it links you to I, I always go to the Wine Business News just to see what's going on and um, but they link to external sites. So this was because yeah, it, it, it's, it's an, an aggregator. aggregator. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is Ellen. Anyway, Ellen McCoy and so here's the summary of the article. So it says uh, dogs sense of smell is between 10,000 and 100,000 times better than humans. So due to this heightened sense of smell, dogs are being trained to sniff out the dreaded chemical TCA and TBA in oak staves destined to become barrels. So for those of you who don't know, because I didn't know, TCA and TCB are the cause of quote-unquote cork taint, which is mm. a off flavor in wine that makes it taste kind of like wet cardboard. Um, it is apparently not pleasant. I'm kind of curious to try something with cork taint to know what it tastes like. <laughs> All right, Jacob. Yeah. Go find the most recent Amazon box you have. Yeah. Put it under the sink. Put it in your mouth. Right. <laughs> Take a sip of your wine. Well, I, you I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably what it's. But they were saying, so this, the TCA and TCB is such a strong chemical to humans that only a few drops in an Olympic-sized pool would be enough for you to be able to detect the smell and taste of it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, and so this does affect a lot of wine, and it's very difficult to track down, but apparently dogs are able to smell it. So the dogs mm-hmm. are also being trained to smell other issues, uh, contaminants from other other issues with wood, also things from like plastic hoses, um, which if a plastic hose comes in contact with the wine juice, it can, it can give an off flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're using pumps that have some sort of contamination in it, uh, silicone, uh, bunges, which is, I guess the big, uh, 
silicone plugs that they use to plug the top of wine barrels, uh, those mm-hmm. can those can get a contaminant on them, and it can give an off flavor. Uh, and then uh, fining agents, which is like the I think the agents that are used to clarify wine, mm-hmm. some of those can get contaminated, and those will also uh, cause a problem. So the dogs are being trained to smell out all of these contaminants that could be there. They have different dogs that do different things, uh, but they just they go through and they just they sniff out all these things and, and do a, basically a certification process that these things are good. So back in 2018, uh, Opus One, which I think you and I have done some articles about them, they're a very major player in Napa Valley. Uh, they make Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, they mm-hmm. sued they sued their French barrel maker for. Uh, $470,000 claiming that 10 barrels had been contaminated with TCA and it had damaged um, 590 gallons of their $325 a bottle Cabernet Sauvignon. Wow. Uh, so that's a big deal. And uh, mm-hmm. for you know obvious reasons, the barrel makers and the winer- wineries and stuff um, want to make sure that they can kind of curb that. Uh, the dogs are also being trained to uh, sniff out things in the fields that can cause contamination, such as bugs. Uh, wasps apparently are a big problem in wine uh-huh. uh, wine fields, so uh, they'll sniff out wasps so that you can get rid of the wasps in whatever manner you want. Um, other types of bugs, uh, the uh, I think it's Phloxera, Phloxera is the one that like eats the roots or whatever. Some of them can smell those, and so that you can make sure to try to like con- contain that if if there's a problem now. These days, they pretty much use American rootstock for everything, but in places uh-huh. like Chile, they still have old vines on European rootstock because they never got phylloxera down there. Uh-huh. So uh, places like that are very concerned that that they may get an introduction of phylloxera and it will it will kill very large percentage of their vine. I mean, like back in I guess it was like the late 1700s when phylloxera hit France, they were losing something like 80 percent, 90 percent of their vines to this uh-huh. this bug. And uh, they also are, are being trained to uh, sniff out certain types of mold and rot that are difficult to detect otherwise and can cause a lot of off flavors. The article's longer than that. It has a lot more information that's a lot of – that's very interesting. Um, one of the things that I thought was really great though about this is that some of these dogs are – retrained dogs that used to be trained to sniff out drugs mm-hmm. and you know how we feel about the drug war and for those mm-hmm. who are listening uh we are anti-drug war <laughs> correct and i i always feel bad for the dogs that have to do that work mm-hmm. and because it's just like they don't know any better and but they're basically ruining people's lives and but they're just you know they're trained to sniff drugs that's what they do but now they can save people bat from bad wine instead mm-hmm. of putting people in jail for you know transporting nose candy yeah, so or whatever else yeah, whatever. So this, this... simply wow don't we all love dogs just a little bit more i know i do but at any rate great job for my boys over at tasting anarchy up next we have a fancy and perhaps infuriating discussion with bob murphy of the bob murphy show where he's talking to an actual doctor about some of the ways around. Oh, you know, Obamacare. Let's see what they're getting into. So I suppose, I mean, just thinking off the cuff here, like in terms of what is it that, because again, like in a normal, in a genuine free market, you would think even if there were these cozy relationships, competition would eventually break them down. But here it's not an, an open market. And so like somebody can't just down the street, open up a competing hospital because there's all kinds of, uh, was it like certificate of need or something like that, that the other doctors yes. in the area can just sign, have to sign off on. And of course 
there's the FDA and the, you know, the medical licensing. So there's all kinds of restrictions politically on, you know, competition in this sector. So I guess, is that partly what maintains this crazy relationship? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's still certificate of need laws in, I think, 30 states or more. There also uh, was a provision in the Unaffordable Care Act uh, that was the last the last item optioned to the American Hospital Association to gain their support for that legislation. And it is a uh, it's a clause that prevents uh, the construction of a new physician owned hospital and even the expansion of an existing physician owned hospital. And the government does what it always does. It it says, well, you can go ahead if you want. You just can't accept any federal money. So it was very stifling uh, for this legislation to to appear, uh, particularly that part of it. So there's certificate of need. There's the federal prohibition on the construction or expansion of physician-owned facilities. And then the regulatory burden that typically only the largest institutions can endure is very scary and creates a lot of uncertainty for anybody that's contemplating uh, stepping out as an underdog. And the other thing is that if you step in as an underdog, you very likely are not going to be allowed in the club or the network, as the insurance companies call it. So uh, to to step into this game, knowing that it's not so much that the market is dysfunctional, the market is absent. Uh, You really have to understand who the buyers are with sticker shock and appeal to them. I think the good news is we're beginning to see this good old boy thing breaking down a bit uh, because some some parts of this arrangement have benefited more than others. And starting to see some finger pointing uh, right now where there are all these surprise medical bills and the insurance companies want to blame the hospitals and the hospitals want to blame the insurance companies. And as my dad says, you know, there's some fights where you just sit back and hope for casualties on both sides. And I think there's a little bit of that going on. Um, and and so I think there is a breakdown. And I think also uh, the insurance companies are very aware of the pricing that I have online and many others do, too. And that really has become their new benchmark for how they can leverage the big hospital systems, because at some point, I think to your point, at some point it becomes worth it uh, to walk away from the good old boy arrangement and and for some of these carriers to get actually get back into the insurance business. I'm I'm actually very optimistic because I think I am seeing uh, the breakdown that you would think that the power of the market would provide. And I think we are witnessing it right now. Well, that's very encouraging. Um, yeah, so, yeah, let's go back. You, you made a, a couple of remarks. Uh, in the beginning of this inter- interview here that I want to follow up on saying how, you know, like with car insurance, the function of insurance is that there's a small probability event that has a large um, financial cost. And that's what insurance is for. So yeah, if in case you get into an accident with your car and, and you need your car to be replaced, then that's what auto insurance is for. It is not for you to fill up your gas tank. So, are you ready to throw fisticuffs up in the air? I know I am. Which is funny because Bob's a pacifist. He's against all the violence. And something about that podcast made me feel exceptionally violent. Could it perhaps be people getting in the way of the free market? I do not know. 
but let's see what we have over here with the Rollo and Slappy Show. One of the most interesting and principled looks at all of the topics of the day. Rollo McFlugel and Slappy Jones 2 are two great friends of mine and one of the best pods out there. And, you know, perhaps they don't have the cachet as somebody like Bob Murphy. So go, you really need to give this a listen. Uh, they're talking about, I don't know, boomers here? <laughs> Maybe boomers. You, you decide. Or product or service while also making money off it. Um, I certainly don't want people to get that idea from me that because someone's promote because someone has an, an opportunity to make money off something that that makes it wrong and they shouldn't be doing it because they can make money off it. Uh, I think profits and one of the best motivators there is. Um, so it's it's when <coughs> it's when it's done fraudulently, and uh, if you can go back and and prove that. I was being fraudulent with my claims and I was lying, then, you know, uh, I guess good luck. <laughs> I could certainly sit here and tell I mean, you that I, that I believe what I'm saying. Yeah, um, I've been that's wrong. Where, that's, um, we've both been wrong about things in our lives, you know, but I don't, at least not in regards to the podcast or blog, I've never been fraudulent. I've never sure. been not telling you what I think. Yeah. And I think a big thing will be when a way you can kind of judge people we're getting an idea at least right now uh because this is not i don't think we're going to wake up tomorrow and bitcoin's going to be money and all coins are going to be worth zero and and everything else but you could see as as things move along and and go go around like how do you deal with being shown that you're incorrect i mean are you capable of saying um hey actually all right i was wrong about this and uh you know, I'll change change what I talk about and not try to, you know, just be a man about it and say, hey, I, I said this. I've now come to understand that it, the opposite is true. Uh, but we see people, you, you can look at it right now and, and watch things as they go go along and uh, going into Bitcoin, like the, uh, the Lightning Network. Uh, you just see the... Uh, and, and the whole scaling debate. You see how the goalposts keep getting constantly moved. Um, first, uh, you know, oh, you, you, Bitcoin's going to, uh, you know, struggle so much because you didn't raise the block block size. And uh, and then it became, well, Lightning Network's vaporware. It's never going to do anything. And now it's, oh, well, not enough people are actually running their own nodes to say that the Lightning Network's not a centralized thing. And I mean, as, as the Lightning Network grows, there's going to be more like, bad arguments against it. And when these people don't ever like admit, because it's not like they say, oh, well, all right. Well, obviously this isn't vaporware, um, but I see these other issues with it. That's not what's happening. It's it's just a, a, a slick moving of the goalposts and mm -hmm. never actually admitting that you're wrong. So I think that gives clues to, uh, to the kind of people you're dealing with. And I don't mean to say that that's, well, so it, here's where I, I'll differ. Well, well, I'm not. I'm not saying that's a hard and fast rule. I'm just saying that that that's something that you can look at to help nudge you in one direction or another. Because it's not easy to admit that you're wrong. 
Yeah. And I was going to say, I think the default position of people is to be defensive when you're wrong. I don't think the default position or so I think it's more shows someone's integrity or character when they can admit they're wrong. That's why, I mean, we, how many people have we talked to these ideas to that make perfect sense to me? And you'll talk to someone who doesn't disagree, like everything you're saying, they go down like, oh yeah, you're right. This is, you know, taxation is theft. You're right. But they will never admit they're wrong and they continue voting and they continue supporting the system. And that's the overwhelming majority of people that I've come in contact with. So when someone is capable of changing their mind and saying, I was wrong, um, you were, you know, they don't even have to say you were right. I don't care. It's just, I was wrong. I changed. I, f- I think that is the exception more than the rule. And I, I, if you want to talk like promoting, I can, or my opinion promotion or whatever of that person goes up. Whereas when someone doesn't, when someone doubles down, when someone keeps changing the goalposts, I just kind of, yeah, whatever. You're an idiot. That's right. what you want to do. But that's what I expect. Yeah. I guess I should have been more careful to, to, because like, I don't, for the people that they're just ignorant and there are you. And there are a lot of ignorant people out there. That one, I, I wish I could have just clipped in the entire episode. It was fantastic. I, I actually listened to a couple parts of it two or three times because I had to go back and be like, oh, man, this is some good stuff. But alas, I could not get an entire episode in here. But what I do have as a consolation gift is a fantastic discussion with my boy over at Anarcho Inc., the podcast dedicated to the entrepreneurial libertarian covering usually technology and uh, business. So enjoy this discussion. Get those in the show notes. Cool. So, um, so quite, quite a few projects. So is this something you're uh, able to do full time, the writing, the podcast and, and, and kind of be self-sufficient on your own or are these kind of like your side hustles, hobbies, like for many of us? Well, as of this point, you know, I mean, uh, um, you know, the, like the, uh, noisemaker podcast is not actually in, in the, uh, realm of being able to turn a profit at this point in time. Right. Um, you know, and, and writing is one of those things where you kind of have to do it for a little while and have to have people, you don't know, want to pay to publish you. your stuff. Right. It's a lot of uh, legwork at the beginning. Yeah. And so, uh, no, I, I actually drive truck for a living. Um, oh, okay. I, I work about 70 hours a week driving, uh, Actually, I, I got a local gig here, and I so I uh, pick up milk. I don't drive over the road anymore, mm-hmm. but I pick up milk and I deliver it to plants and stuff like that. So uh-huh. I spend, and but then also when I'm sitting in line waiting to get to the plant, I bust out my laptop, and I that's usually when I work on schoolwork, which I just finished. I just graduated this year, so oh, congratulations! Um, yeah, actually, I've got I've got seven seven degrees. I got two bachelor's degrees and uh, <laughs> uh, five associates. So. You know, I was thinking about Shit. moving on to a master's, but I, I don't know if the uh, uh, yeah. know if 15 grand, I told my pops, I said, you know, if I'm going to drop 15 grand, I might as well pay somebody at, uh, at a corporation to just give me a job. And cause I could pay somebody $15,000 to give me a job. You know what I mean? Either that or, or invested in your businesses. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. But I mean, like if I wanted to get a job as a higher, at a higher up, I already got the bachelor's degrees, which most of them would require to have the job. Now yeah. you just drop the $15,000 to give somebody, give it to somebody to give you a job in the company. Then you learn yeah. the ropes and you're already in, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, 
it, it sounds kind of crony capitalistic at that point, but it, but at the same time, you know what I mean? Like all I'm saying is that there's there's better ways to spend $15,000 than on a master's degree. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot more than that on a master's degree and I'm not sure if it uh, helped me or hurt me, but I mean, <laughs> I, I do all right. I, 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 I did my master's in information technology and um, some days I regret, regrets, you know, getting that loan. <laughs> And um, because most of this computer stuff is all online today, there's nothing a college, especially if you're going to learn to code, there's nothing that you're not going to learn online. Literally, there's so many courses that you could just buy for 50, 60 bucks and you'll learn how to build web applications in, in an afternoon. You know, yeah. if you really put your mind to it, you know, you really can teach yourself anything, I think. As long as, you know, it's, and you got to be passionate about it too. You know, that's the thing. It's what you're passionate about, which is hard, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's um, uh, yeah, I'm the same way. You know, I've got a bunch of businesses, as everybody knows, and, and I'm, I'm trying to, um, you know, I've been building websites for so many years, like 11 years now for other people making other people money. And it's just like, I'm going to start building websites for myself <laughs> money now, you know, so we'll see how that goes. Um, so, uh, with all your, you know, so do you feel like there's enough podcasts out there for libertarians? You feel like there's one for pretty much everybody. I personally don't think there's enough, and I'm more than happy to continue doing this and showing people all the different stuff that's out there. If you want to submit some of your own stuff, please, please let me know about it at liberpods.com, and we'll get you get you in here, get you the word out. Uh, anyway, so we have one last clip this week, and we're going to be going with a heavy hitter. The man who is definitely a capitalist, but doesn't think he's a capitalist. The one, the only, Mr. Dean over at Dino Files. So, enjoy this uh, last clip. Socialist, stateless socialism doesn't get rid of the market. You still have competition. And you still have people who have to make decisions about what they want to do. Um, uh, moving on, fire. Another story from Fire, 529, published on 529. Liberals who learned about white privilege became less sympathetic to poor whites. This goes back to the intersectionality thing. Written by Robbie Self. This dude is prolific. Does educating people about white privilege, the idea that for white people their race is a boon, but for black people a drawback, at least in certain social situations, make them more empathetic? A fascinating new study suggests that the kind of racism awareness training taught in many university classrooms is not only useless, but may actually be detrimental. The study was published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General in April. Researchers provided participants with some academic literature explaining the concept of white privilege and then asked them to gauge their reactions to hearing a story about an unfortunate man. For some percent, uh, participants, the man was described as black. For others, he was described as white. Researchers also ran a separate experiment in which the participants were not told about white privilege before reading the story. They also queried both sets of participants about their political beliefs. What they found was that conservatives who had learned about white privilege were no more sympathetic to the poor black man than conservatives who had not learned. I'm sorry. Conservatives who had learned about white privilege were no more sympathetic to the poor black man than conservatives who had not learned about white privilege. For liberals, the results, the results were alarming. 
Liberals who (laughs) who read the educational materials about white privilege were similarly unsympathetic to the poor black man as the liberals in the second experiment, but they were even more unsympathetic to the poor white man. Quote, what we found startling was that white privilege lessons didn't increase liberal sympathy for poor black people, writes Aaron Cooley, one of the study's authors and an assistant professor of psychology at Colgate University in an explanatory post for Vice. Quote, instead, these lessons decrease liberal sympathy for poor white people, which led them to blame white people more for their own poverty. They seem to think that if a person is poor, despite all the privileges of being white, there must really be something wrong with them. Uh, in other words, learning about white privilege did not make conservatives more empathetic. And it uh, did not make conservatives more pathetic, and it made some liberals less sympathetic overall. Reflecting on this finding of Quillet, Zay Jelani proposes a possible explanation. Quote, what accounts for this? One possibility is that social liberals are internalizing white privilege lessons in a way that flattens the image of whites, portraying them all, uh, portraying all of them as inherently privileged. So if a white person is poor, then it must be his or her own fault. After all, they've had all sorts of advantages in life and others haven't. This would mean that the sort of social justice training programs offered by numerous universities could be having an undesirable effect, given that most students who enroll at these, at these classes are liberals. To take just one example, the University of Colorado at Denver offers a class called Problemizing Whiteness, Educating for Racial Justice, in which students are required to look, quote, beyond feel-good momentary white racial awareness and realize that, quote, whites are complicit. In researching my book, Panic Attack, The Young Radicals and the Age of Trump, I found numerous similar examples of academic exercises that blurred the line between anti-racism and anti-whiteness and between scholarship and activism. It would hardly be surprising if these classes, rather than changing liberal students' feelings toward disadvantaged black people, merely galvanized them against whites. Reach for comment. Cooley told me that she thought such a course could amplify the effects as you suggest, but, quote, If the course uh, tackled many different forms of hierarchy, class, ability, gender, sexual orientation, I would hope the students would leave with a more nuanced view of inequality and thus perhaps not show the effects we see in our study. Yeah. Yeah. Let's solve your your critical theory problems with more critical theory. Let's do that. (laughs) Fucking morons. Um, this is, I, I, I mean, I mean, really, could, could we not have guessed this would happen? This seems like a, like kind of an obvious result. For anyone who's interacted with these people. Cryptic Cynic, I'm still considering ditching the market altogether for communism. Once I started really looking into it, I realized... All right. Well, that has been this week in Liberpods, folks. So go out there, find the pod that does exactly what you want, and make your echo chamber just a little bit wider. Or let's get rid of echo chambers entirely. At least the little echo chambers. I don't care if we keep the bigger echo chamber of libertarianism, but let's get rid of the little ones. So, once again, you can go to liberpods.com, and it will point you to where you need pointed to. Enjoy. Enjoy.